0: So, this past weekend, I went on a little adventure with my wife and some friends to a lake house. And as we were sitting there and I was doing my prayer time on Saturday morning, a friend of mine came out and stood on the pier and, and, and took their picture. And then they continued to look at their phone for the next 25 minutes. To, to create just the perfect image, to, to create just the right filter for their picture so that they could post it. And I started thinking about how often we try to create an image how how often and you can you could put it on social media but it was happening long before social media too but the, we try to create and curate this image of who we are and how we want people to perceive us and so we we give them this information or that information but we don't give them every piece of information we, we want to present as though we have it all figured out. This is why, God bless us in the South, Anytime you see somebody in the grocery store and you say, hey, how are you, the expected response is always, 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 I'm fine. We don't ever actually expect anybody to actually tell us what's going on in their life because that would make their image look a little bit less than. It, it, it's why we, we live in a world that so infrequently wants to address things like mental health as well. Because that means that you're weak if you have to go seek help and therapy. And this, like I said, it started before social media. I know social media gets a bad rap and it does have its reasons that it probably should, but it also happened before. We were just a little bit different in how we created the image. And sometimes the image that we create is not even our own, but is an image that has been thrust upon us by the world or by our families, or, sadly, by the church. And so we find ourselves that, and this is not going to be a sermon on parenting, but when we are raising and rearing children, that what happens is if they say something, they do something that doesn't line up with the image that we have for them or how we think they should act. Instead of investigating the why of what's actually going on, we just tell them we don't do that and we continue to try to construct this image of who they are. Instead of allowing people to be who they are created to be, we find ourselves trying to fit into the ways of this world, into what, how the world would define us to be. And that's what Paul is addressing in the letter today as we continue this journey through Galatians, and he's kind of harping in on this idea that for many people they've started to live into an image and they don't even understand the why because they reached a moment in life and they said, this is who I am. And I don't need to grow or learn anything else because this is it. And I started thinking about the day that I was married and I stood there before God and the preacher and everybody else and I said, I do to my wife. What her reaction would have been is if at that moment I looked at her and said, and now I know everything there is to know about you. There's no need to grow in relationship anymore. We're good. Let's just stay put right here. And what Paul is kind of pointing them to today is this, that sometimes we have to move beyond I do, especially in our faith. And so as we start in Galatians chapter 5, he kind of sums up in the entirety of his letter in that first verse where he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This is kind of what he's been talking about for the past four chapters. And he says, Mark my words. I tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, but by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And so I want to pause right there for a minute because it can sound a bit harsh what Paul is saying, but what Paul is pointing them to is this, that you have started to believe what you do, how you present, is what is going to get you into heaven. And he says, and what happens when you start thinking about a works based righteousness, which you start, what happens when you start thinking I can work myself into heaven is this you discredit the need for grace. You wouldn't say it out loud, but you say, I don't need God's grace. I'm good enough. I can do enough. And then what happens is we start to view grace as kind of this little side byproduct, and we don't extend it to anyone else because we go, I'm good enough. Why aren't they good enough? I've done enough. Why don't they do more and do better? And in this image-based society, We never really address the hearts of the issues. We just look at behavior modifications. And the reality of it is also this that sadly, what happens if we are not careful is we start judging our own salvation based on other people. I'm better than them, so I'm good. I'm further along in the journey than they are, so I'm good. And the thing is, is what happens is we also stop extending grace to those people because we go, just figure it out. I did. And so that's what Paul is kind of addressing here when he says you've lost sight of grace. You've you've fallen away from Christ. And he goes on in verse 7 and says, you know, you were running a good race. What happened? Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he or she may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish that they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. The wording of the offensiveness of the cross. I don't know if you caught it when it was said. It kind of made me go, do what? What is the offensiveness of the cross? And I think in a world and in a society where we say, I can handle it, I can do it, the offensive phrase of the cross is, no, you can't. Because if you could, then there would have been no need for Jesus. But because we are all sinners and we all have our own flaws and imperfections, what we needed is a savior. And so when we lose sight of that, we lose sight of that phrasing that guess what? You can't do it on your own. None of us can. Because we're called to be in relationship. But the problem is is that so often when we find ourselves so worried about the own image that we portray or the image that that our families portray or even the image that our church portrays or whatever, what what starts to happen sadly is relationships are not what they were deemed to be. Because relationships are called and created, if you go back and look through those verses of servant song, that's what they're called to be. A give and take, a going together and caring for the least and the lost. It is a call to be in community with one another and care for each other. But sadly, if all we're worried about is an image to be portrayed, then all of a sudden relationships become a tool to portray a better image. I'm going to associate with the people that look, think, and act like me because that's who I want to be associated with. I want people to think that's who I am. And we lose sight of where Jesus Christ says, No, 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 we're called, we can't all be a finger. We can't all be a nose. We can't all be an ear. We all have a different purpose. We need each other. And so we find ourselves kind of living into this image that's been portrayed or cast down to us And then Paul closes this part of the letter and says, My brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, Watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. First fifteen should convict each and every one of us. because I firmly believe this and you may disagree and if you do that is fine, we can have a conversation about it, I promise, but that if we're that What has happened so frequently in the church is that we have erred on the side of image. We have erred on the side of forgetting about God's grace. We have erred on this idea of taking care of self instead of loving neighbor. And so what we find is that we are living out, verse 15, where we are devouring one another. We are attacking one another. And this is why there is so much separation and so much issues amongst our current congregation. Is because we view each other as the enemies. And I'm not even talking about the United Methodist Church as a whole. I'm even talking about people sitting in pews in here today. We view each other as enemies, and we start devouring each other, and there's lack of trust, and there's lack of guidance, and there's lack of just Jesus Christ in all of it because we say, oh, well, I've got it figured out. They just need to be like me. And Paul, in his letter is calling them away from all of this. He's saying, don't do that, because here's what happens. It's kind of like that old phrase, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. And he's saying, if you, if you want to be reminded of why Jesus came, it's because you could not be good enough on your own. That we cannot earn salvation. We need a Savior but somehow we've come to a place where we look at sin as a hierarchy of sin and we say, oh yeah, I may need a savior, but they need one way worse. And and it's not a hierarchy, it's literally we all need a savior. We find ourselves saying, my sins aren't as bad as my neighbor's, you should see what they were doing on Friday night. Or we find ourselves victimizing people because their sins are different than ours. And we say, oh yeah, but... I don't wrestle with that. And what Paul is trying to point them to is that this idea they're talking about a physical circumcision, he's saying what you need to wrestle with, and what John Wesley would later write a sermon about, is this, a circumcision of the heart, where you do the internal work on your own self, and you see your own impurities, and you see your own flaws, and you start to cut those out of your own life. But the reason in which we are so fascinated with images is because we do not want to do the internal work that God calls us to we would much rather play the judgment game we would much rather view ourselves in light of someone else's imperfections than to look at ourselves and go no I need to work on me instead of working on them first I need to fix me and so this is what Paul is addressing throughout this letter And sadly, like I said earlier, I think this so often can happen if we're not careful in our own faith as well. Because what kind of happens when we start worrying about images, we just start living into whatever cookie-cutter image we were presented at a young age of what a Christian should be. And we lose sight of this, that to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, disciple, the root word is this, follower, pupil, student. So to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to become a lifelong learner. Following Jesus, wherever he goes, going, I don't have it all figured out because I'm going to continue to learn and grow from Jesus Christ. But some of us, we find ourselves stopping at a moment of conversion and we say, when I walked down that aisle at a vacation Bible school, when I knelt at camp, whenever I raised my hand and went through confirmation, all of a sudden, I had it all figured out. And there's nothing else for me to learn. And we t- start telling people that this is what it's all about. And we start teaching people these things. But as I've, I've used this quote before, it's one of my favorite quotes from an author, Donald Miller, where he says, I can no more understand the totality of God than the blueberry in my pancake can understand the totality of me. Which should tell you this you think you've got God all figured out it's probably an indication that you've created a God that is too small because God is grander than we can ever fathom and God is more gracious than we could ever understand. And so what he's saying here is let's not lose sight of the need of the cross. Let's not lose sight of the need of God's grace. If you wanted to go in Wesleyan theology, what he's saying is, as he's already talked about the pervenient grace, how God's at work within us before we ever even knew it. One of the illustrations I heard growing up is this, that John Wesley believes in a house of grace and prevenient grace is when you're in the front yard. You haven't even entered in yet. You don't really know what to expect. You're just kind of walking around, God's, but God's still at work. And justifying grace is that moment when you decide to walk through the threshold, enter into that relationship. But what, what Paul is pointing them to do today is a whole different type of grace because it is sanctifying grace that says, hey, now it's time to get down and do the work of making this house a home. And some of us have settled for justifying grace and said, I'm good. And I just want you to think of what would have happened if, when you moved into your house, you just said, I'm going to neglect everything about it. Not worry about that that window that's broken, not worry about that roof that's leaking. Not worry about the the infestation that we may have. Not worry about cleaning up the house. I'm in the house. That's all that matters. Then eventually, what happens is all of a sudden your house starts to crumble around you, and you go, God, where are you? And God said, Well, I've been waiting on you to start doing some work. That I want to work with you, but I can't do it all on my own. That it's a joint effort and so what paul is pointing us to is this idea of sanctifying grace within our hearts that as we live in our faith that it continues to grow and it continues to help us do the work to cleanse ourselves and it's amazing what happens when you start doing internal work because you become far far less worried about external work and what other people need to change because you realize how much you have to change and that's not to say, notice that Paul points this out. He says, that's not to say that we don't address the issue of sin. It's not to say that sin no longer matters. It's not this idea that, that when we get in there, that we just don't have to worry about anything else. Because what we find is that as we grow in Christ, the way in which we act and interact changes. It, it, it reflects, the work that we're doing inside is reflected in the way in which we treat one another. That as we, as we begin to become more exposed to our need of grace, we become more gracious to our neighbor. That when we start to realize our need for a Savior, we don't hold people up down because they are in need of a Savior as well. And so we have to answer an honest question. Is our salvation built on the grace of Jesus Christ or because at some point in our life we decided to pray a prayer? If we think our salvation is from our actions, we lose sight of the need of grace. Because we must move past I do and start to do. God's grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. As he said in verse 13, don't use your freedom to cover up whatever you want to do. Or you could put it this way, it doesn't matter what you do to be made right with God, but because you are right with God, what you do matters. Because you have taken on the name of Christ Jesus, how you act and interact with people matters. What you say and how you extend God's good news matters because you are a reflection of Christ Jesus. And so as we wait, as we wait in that moment for Christ to return as we wait for for Christ to eventually come and remove us all from the presence of sin, we proclaim, Jesus, we need you. Jesus, I need you. I need you to save me from the power of sin, to help me and empower me to do the work in my own life and in my own heart. That I can become a more obedient disciple. That I can learn from you day by day. And so maybe the question that we need to ask when we arise and when we lay our head on our pillows and every moment is, God, what are you trying to teach me now? Because we have to move beyond a place that says, I do, to a place where we actually do some stuff. We've entered into the house, but we've got to live there and do the internal work to clean it out. And as Paul is saying, if we're not careful, if we don't do the work, This idea of Christianity can become something that we hinge our own ego and our own pride on and become boastful of. And what he reminds us later is this, that Jesus Christ is not something for us to be boastful of, but instead what it is actually saying is you couldn't do it on your own. So it should be something that humbles us. So my challenge for us is this. Do the tough work. It's real easy to cast judgment and disparity on other people, but sometimes it's harder to crack through that image that we've created, to be open and honest with ourselves and with God, and to engage in real relationship with one another. But only when we crack through those false fronts and false narratives that we have created can the real work of Jesus Christ start to shine through. And so let us move beyond I do and actually do the work of our Lord and Savior. Amen.